Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. There was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run, when the wild majestic mountains stood alone against the sun, long before the white man and long before the wheel, when the green dark forest was too silent to be real. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song. I am your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Gordon Lightfoot fan and interpreter of his work, John McLaughlin. Welcome, John, and greetings. Thanks very much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. All right. So this is the way I always start with my guests. How did you first get into Gordon's music? And maybe if you want to talk about how you started playing it also. Sure. I was actually nine years old. It was 1970. And, um, and Ms. Dolan was a student teacher at my grade four class. And uh, she brought in this album that looked familiar. And it was Sunday Concert by Gordon Lightfoot, his fifth album. Mm -hmm. And it looked familiar because my dad owned it at home. But suddenly, because Ms. Dolan had it, I thought it was, well, maybe there's something to listen to here. And she played the Canadian Railroad Trilogy as part of our Canadian history class. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction to it. And um, I became a lifelong Gordon Lightfoot fan from that one moment. Fantastic. And that's a great, you know, song to get hooked by. And that is the one we're going to be talking about today. What about playing it? Was that something that happened that you knew that when you took up performing music, you knew immediately that was he wanted to be doing his music or something tantamount to it or talk a little bit about that? Sure. Actually, it was his music that really got me going with playing guitar. I, I didn't at that point, but when I was a teenager, about 14 or 15, I started playing guitar and I used some of the books that had come out with, uh, with the original lead sheets. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's an old uh, lead sheet from that, that, that album, The Way I Feel, that is handwritten and it's for the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. And so that was, that was really cool to use that to learn it. And so I got into it that way. But before that, I actually would pretend I was playing the guitar when I was a little kid there. And I, I would actually uh, pretend I was, you know, singing the whole song. So I memorized all the lyrics to this song. Yeah, I had the same kind of thing. It wasn't to Canadian Railroad Trilogy. It was to Don Quixote and to other songs. But, you know, I had basically the same experience. And when I started playing as a teenager, he was one of the three or four, you know, reasons that I really got into playing at all. So what about your experience of seeing Gordon live? I mean, you have how many times, what kind of venues, what was the show like, et cetera? Sure. 
The first one I went to was in 1973 at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre in Vancouver, which is where I lived. And I would see him there many, many times over the years. In fact, I've seen him about 30 times, I guess, in concert. So that's a great venue for it, although it's fairly large. I've seen him five times at Massey Hall in Toronto. And um, that's actually been a real thrill to, to see him there. That's kind of like his home turf, you know, and so that's been pretty cool. So it's mostly in those two places that I've seen him over there. I also saw him in Ottawa, Canada, um, a couple of times uh, when I was there on business. And the venues for people who are not familiar with them. I mean, what's the audience capacity for those uh, halls? Well, the Queen Elizabeth Theatre in Vancouver is about, I think it's 2,900 people or so. And so he was doing one or two shows. And then after Sundown came out in in 1974, I remember lining up for tickets. Back then, of course, you know, remember we had to go to the theatre and actually buy the tickets. Mm -hmm. And he played there a few months later and he did four shows. He would do one at uh, eight o'clock, one at 1030 and did that for two nights. So, you know, it was just sort of took off from there. And that's a fair crowd to have out for sure. Well, 2,900 people is no mean number. And I would think that that would be a, a really good size. Although I imagine he would do well in very small clubs also. And I, I can't imagine him being in stadium size venues. I mean, obviously it would be a good show, but I don't know if his music lends itself to that sort of ambiance. Now, for the song we're talking about today, Canadian Railroad Trilogy, you said that you learned about it in the context of a Canadian history class. And so I guess I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about how the Canadian, and I'm assuming this is a transcontinental railroad, mm-hmm. me being a, a history teacher, but being in the, in the States, I mean, we talk about, you know, Promontory Point, Utah in 1869 and those kinds of things. But what about the Canadian version of that? What was the historical background on that? Sure. Well, it was uh, Canada was formed in 1867, uh, mm-hmm. which was a confederation of a number of provinces in eastern, what is we call Eastern Canada now. And I live in British Columbia, which is on the west coast mm-hmm. of the continent. And as far as I know, the the colony here was said, look, if we build a railway all the way out to the west coast, will you become a province? And so they said yes. And so British Columbia became a province in 1871 which was a f- four years after Canada became a country. Mm-hmm. But it was a few years before the railway actually got underway. And that didn't happen until about 1881, 82. Um, okay. And it was pushed across in four years, which is sort of mind boggling, uh, given that it's, you know, about 2,500 miles from uh, central Canada. Mm-hmm. And that's faster than our own version of it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how there's a parallel between those two. So what sparked Gordon uh, to write this? My understanding is that he was actually commissioned to write this song for a centennial Canada becoming part of, I guess, the Commonwealth. Do I have that background right? Yeah, 1860, or 1967 was Canada's 100th birthday. Uh, as its as its own country and the canadian broadcasting corporation the cbc commissioned him to write this piece and in fact there's a bit of video and that was done on it which is you know it's very 60s tv in terms of its dramatization of it so they Mm -hmm. take all of the different sections of the song and sort of do a whole moving kind of a thing with it which was pretty cool and it was also the year that expo happened in montreal and canada in 1967 although i was just a little kid but i mean it was sort of filled with 
a lot of optimism. And, and so this song has such exuberance to it and it tied in really well. So I think he, you know, he wrote this one. He also wrote Crossroads, which is another song off the same album that's has a similar feel, but it doesn't have the epicness that, uh, that this song has. Gotcha. Yeah. It's an amazing song to commemorate that. And we have seen, I'm sure you've seen that when people are commissioned to write songs, it can change the quality of the work that's being done. But this is coming from the heart. And I think it was said in the documentary that it screamed Canada. And not just because of the title of the song, of course, but just because it was so representative of the optimism, like you said, and the patriotism. So if you could choose any setting in which to listen to the song, okay, whether that's at home or in your car or, you know, in an airplane or any place, okay, if you could have this on your Apple Music or whatever platform you have, okay, and you have your earbuds in and where where would you be and what would you be doing ideally when you hit the play button to listen to the song? Well, I'm going to choose a couple of places, but it would be in, in a car, and I have done this, and it's cranked on the car system, driving through Kicking Horse Canyon, which was uh, in the Rocky Mountains, just coming out of the Rocky Mountains, heading west, or mm-hmm. on the prairies, just the big open sky and moving along and the pace of the song. So it's a, it's a great one to crank up when you're driving. What's well, my favorite place to listen to it? I think I would also listen to it driving, but I would be probably going through the gold country in California because there are a lot of parallels. We'll talk about those a little bit as we go on between the Canadian structure and the American structure. We, like I said, we'll talk about that. So let's talk a little bit about the lyrics now. And I'm going to sort of go through with a couple of observations and by all means jump in You know about things that jump out to you picking up from where we left off, but time has no beginnings and the history has no bounds. As to this verdant country, they came from all around. It was only a very short time ago that I realized that verdant was the word that he was using. I had never heard that word used in any artistic context. It was one that's necessarily used in lexicons, you know, very often. And it, I guess verdant means green and natural. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, it is. It is. And it's funny. I mean, I learned that word when I was nine because I sat on the floor of my bedroom and my dad helped me write out the lyrics to this song. And I came to that word and I guess we, well, for all I know, we both had to look it up. I certainly didn't know it then, but what a cool word it was. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of it, but it isn't a word that we hear very often. So no. And for years when I was growing up and I learned, I I started listening to the song at a very young age. Also, I thought it was, I thought it was burdened country. Which also makes sense if you think about it, because it's burdened down with all sorts of natural resources and blessings that could be seen as a burden. They sailed upon her waterways and they walked the forest tall, built the mines, the mills and the factories for the good of us all. Do you get there? There's a little sarcasm going on at the end of that verse. I don't given that it was written in 1967. There Maybe there would be now. We have a different sense of, for one thing, just the way that everything was just bowled across the continent was basically the settlers that came took over, you know, so we kind of had a different sense of it. And I'm not sure how we would look at that in terms of even looking at factories. And I, I get what you mean, but I, I don't think in 1967, I think it was actually celebrating that. And you have to look at a song in its context, 
So that would make sense that they would be saying that. And when the young man's fancy has turned into the spring, the railroad men grew restless for to hear the hammers ring. Their minds were overflowing with the visions of their day, with many a fortune one lost and many a debt to pay. Then it goes into the second part of the trilogy. And I don't know what the writing process was for Gordon, whether he deliberately wrote it as a trilogy or he just had three songs that he then turned into a suite. But at that point, you go into something a little bit slower for they looked in the future. And what did they see? They saw an iron road running from the sea to the sea, bringing the goods to a young growing land all up from the seaboards and into their hands. Then it's another mysterious lyric. Okay, look away. And I've seen it where it says, look away, sad days across this mighty land. And I always read it as being look away, said they across this mighty land. Do you have any insights on that? Definitely said they. Look away, said they across mm-hmm. this mighty land. This song is kind of interesting because it's the there's the whole national aspect to it, but then there's the people that worked on it. And so I think both the whole dream of the country, uh, you know, and tying it together with this railroad or railway as, as we usually say in Canada, which is by the way, a little sideline here. It's kind of interesting that he called it the Canadian railroad trilogy. When in Canada, we've sort of adopted the British, which was using saying railway. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. kind of, it's kind of interesting, but I think, you know, it was really the country looking, it was really look away, said they, it was just all that, that Mm -hmm. looking out, it was all the opportunity that, that they saw in front of them at that time in the 1860s and 70s. Yeah. And it really does. I mean, it it look away, said they, and number one, it's more consistent with the narrative uh, as opposed to saying sad days. And then second, if you think about where Canada was at, at that time, I mean, you have water power coming out of your ears, mountains of raw materials, and a unique way, a unique North American way that kind of uh, creating technology that creates a technological cascade. Mm -hmm. Once you have the railroad, you have access to the rest of the world. And so the inner pockets of Canada, as it would be for the United States, now all of a sudden they can get things and different foods from other sides of the country and other sides of the world that they would never have been able to get otherwise. Right. And that's why they say that the railroad probably did as much for American economies, and I include the United States and Canada in that, mm-hmm. in the 19th century as much as anything else did. So that, again, that's historically yeah. accurate. Absolutely. What they have there. Bring in the workers and bring up the rails. We got to lay down the tracks and tear up the trails. Open your heart. Let the lifeblood flow. We've got to get on our way because we're moving too slow. That's the end of the second part of the, mm-hmm. the song. And then the third bit is the slowest one of all. And that to me has the most interesting lyrics. Behind the blue Rockies, the sun is declining. The stars have come stealing at the close of the day. Across the wide prairies, our loved ones lie sleeping beyond the dark oceans in a place far away. Now, when I read that lyric, okay, beyond the dark ocean, that implies that the people that are speaking at this part of this are not native born Canadians, that they've come from across an ocean. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, you are. I, as far as my reading and all of this goes, I mean, there were many European immigrants who worked on the railway. A lot of them, though, were Irish, came that way. And then, of course, Chinese workers came from the Pacific and worked on it. Um, and so it, you can just imagine all of them uh, being out there working away and 
thinking of that that I mean, it really would be along the dark ocean far away. I mean, it, it's they were so far from home, and they were in in the middle of you know a very open, broad land that would have been so different from wherever they had come from. And if you think about it, I mean, the philosophy among the American developers, Charles Crocker in particular, what later became the Southern Pacific, yeah. his attitude was, well, we can't find enough white workers, so let's hire Chinese because after all, they built the Great Wall of China, therefore the, he extrapolated that into they can build a railroad. And it turns out he was right, but the the workers on the American side of railroad were terribly treated. I mean, they had their wages withheld. They were put into the most dangerous places. They were the ones who were using dynamite. And a lot of times they couldn't get out of the crevasse that they needed to get into. And, you know, they'd be blown to kingdom come. Did the Chinese workers have the same kinds of experiences in Canada? Yeah, I, I think they did. I think most of them predominantly worked in what is now British Columbia, which was the mountainous, you know, I mean, that's the Rocky Mountains West. They all had, they had the most dangerous jobs. They got the lowest pay. And I think I did, I read somewhere that six to 800 of them died um, on the Canadian, building the Canadian Pacific Railway in, in those few years. So yeah, terrible conditions. And um, I think some of them came up from rail railroads that they'd been working on in the United States, you know, because they had been perhaps more completed a few years before, and they came up and worked on on this one in the eighteen early eighteen eighties. But yeah, just horrible, horrible conditions for them. And that would make sense because after the the transcontinental railroad was finished in the states, the economy just totally tanked because people were figuring, well, we'll have jobs forever. And then the railroad is finished and you have all sorts of workers of all kinds of ethnicities who now they have no place to go. And so I imagine that a lot of the Chinese did migrate north uh, to Canada to work on that railroad. We are the navvies who work upon the railway. So this is the big question. When we're talking about navvies, what's the origin of that word? And we're ostensibly talking about people who are not native-born Canadian and probably not British either, at least not necessarily. Can you give me some insight into the word navvy? Well, as far as I know, it was more the job title than anything. And it was um, it was na- short for navigational engineer, which is, sounds very strange, but it was the canal building that happened in Britain and, and in North America, such as things like the, the Erie Canal, which were the early 1800s. And they were called navigational engineers and they were just work people that they were laborers really is what they were. But it's such a cool word. And I, I mean, it seems so, I, I remember that capturing my imagination when I was a kid, what does that word mean? And it's, it, it isn't a very common word that we hear nowadays. But so I think all of them would have been navvies that whether you were Irish, Ukrainian or Chinese descent, I think you were all navvies. Okay. And today, I I think it might probably be used as a pejorative um, if it was used at all. So I doubt that anybody would be be using it in any respectful way. But again, it's context. You know, that's why probably one of the reasons that Gordon used it, because it was a term that was used at that particular time and good on him for using that. Swinging our hammers in the bright blazing sun, laying down track and building the bridges, bending our backs till the railroad is done. Then we get back into the second part of the song. So over the mountains and over the plains, into the muskag and into the rain. So what's the muskag? Uh, Is that like a region or what does that refer to? 
no, it's actually, um, the word is derived from, it means bog, really. But the Ojibwe word, which is, I think it's mushkig, and the Cree word is muskeg, muskek. It's, it's probably what it's from. And in this case, in terms of the railway, Northern Ontario over Lake Superior, all through in vast areas in there were boggy. And I mean, there is one story where a whole engine just disappeared. It just sunk. So it was very difficult to build through all of that. Not to mention, you can imagine working in that sort of a place in the summer with the bugs and the black flies. And it would have been hell actually to try and work through all of that. So that's the muskeg. I think in, for the Canadian Pacific Railway, most of it's referring to Northern Ontario which is huge it goes for if you ever drive it you think it just goes on and on and on but it's um it's an amazing area but it's it can be marshy and mushy in in many places does Aurelia fall into that area I don't think so I think that that's sort of more closer to that's on uh, down it's getting you're getting closer to Toronto and there but it would be much more west and north of that sort of Okay. Up the St. Lawrence or up to St. Lawrence, depending on, they could be referring to the river, they could be talking about a place, on the way to Gaspé. Now, is Gaspé a terminal point for the railroad or was it a railroad town or what's the significance of Gaspé? Gaspé is actually a region of the province of Quebec. So it's on its way to the Atlantic provinces of Canada. And Gaspé is actually a town, but it would probably, he's referring here to up the St. Lawrence and on the side of the St. Lawrence River on the south side, a part of that whole area is the Gaspé. Okay, got it. So it's a geographical reference. Yeah. And then finishing up the transition back into the first part. Oh, the song of the future has been sung. All the battles have been won. On the mountaintop we stand. All the world at our command. Now, I'm not Canadian, but I could understand the kind of swelling of pride that his audience would have felt with just those words. The satisfaction that those workers must have felt. Mm -hmm. And there is probably a picture of the completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway in the same way that there's that famous one of Leland Stanford shaking hands with E.H. Harriman uh, at Promontory Point, Utah. I would also venture a guess that that picture, it's all white faces. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the most famous photographs in Canadian history. It's called The Last Spike, and it was at a very small place, actually. It's just where they happened to join. I mean, the the railway ended at a place called Port Moody, which is a suburb of Vancouver. But at the time, that's where it ended. But the actual last spike was put in at a place called Kragaliki near Rogers Pass in, in the, the Selkirk Mountains of British Columbia. And the other thing that's missing from all of this is the basically the indigenous peoples who were pretty much ignored through all of this. And I mean, we're still dealing with that now through truth and reconciliation. And a lot is going on with that. And the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway, represented really that whole colonial push through and just do it all. And the Canadian Pacific Railway got millions of acres given to them for building this, which Mm -hmm. made them one of the largest corporations in Canada up until very recently, actually. Um, So it was kind of like a land grab, which I know know in the United States, it's the same sort of thing with the railways did very well wherever they went. It was a huge economic thing for them. Yeah. And talking about railroads, making a quick side trip here, the folklore that went around with the golden spike in Utah was that all the wire services were there and they had the telegraphs and all that. And the idea was that Leland Stanford, when he swung that hammer, okay, to hit that golden spike, 
home, there was a silver spike on the other side of it because it had gone through Nevada, which was the silver state. The joke was that Stanford was badly hung over and swung and he didn't hit the spike. I mean, he missed it by about a foot. And then, you know, all of the telegraph wires, it was, you know, it's completed. It's complete. Well, of course it took him four or five tries, you know, to have that. I don't know if anything quite that scandalous happened at the event that you're talking about in Canada. Yeah, I don't think so. Plus there was no social media then for them. So they got away with it, I guess. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, no social media, I mean, the telegraphs, but yeah. You know, that was that was all you had, which followed the railroads anyway, you know, just historically. And then finishing up the actual composition of the song, he returns to the theme that we started our episode with. And this truly is my favorite part of the song of the arrangement or the way that he did this is this long pause at the very end of the song. And it's longer on the Gord's gold version than it is on the original on, Mm -hmm. on the way I feel. And many are the dead men. And then it must have been 10 seconds before he gets to too silent to be real, which was clearly very deliberate um, that he was, you know, trying to reverence them or to honor the men who had died on that. My question to you is when you've seen him perform that in concert, have the audiences kind of respected that silence? Has the silence always been that long? I can't imagine him not having that silence, but I'm wondering if, you know, there's been this sort of tension with people whistling and cheering before he gets to the last line. And I've heard it many, many times of the 30 times I've gone, I bet he's done it 20, uh, Mm -hmm. performed it 20 times. There's the other little break earlier that we mentioned where it goes into the three, four slow part of the song. That one almost always has somebody start to clap which is always weird because you'd think people would know. So it's always a little bit awkward there. This pause, no, nobody claps. Maybe because if they did earlier on, now they're too embarrassed or you have to be I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. But he lets that pause go and it's really dramatic because he usually does this song, you know, at near the end of the show or as an yeah. encore. Um, it's, it's one of the big tunes. Yeah. And it's such a profound statement. And it's really... In terms of his responding to either events of the past or events of the day, I mean, to me, it's his masterpiece Mm -hmm. in terms of being a chronographer, you know, or a historian. And I like it even more in that regard than Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, because it's so sweeping. And it has amazingly poetic, verdant, you know, just as an example, that one word. Let's talk a little bit about the musical aspects of it. This was originally on The Way I Feel, which came out in 1967, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And then it was re-recorded on Gord's Gold. I've heard both of them. And I'm wondering, number one, which of the two do you really enjoy listening to more? And second, is there a musical part of the arrangement of the one you like that you find particularly interesting as a musician? Um, I like, I think the one on Gord's Gold better. There, there are there are two other versions too. There's a live one that he did on an all live album that was recorded in 1999 at Massey Hall. I was actually at that show, which is freaky. Oh wow! Um, and then he also did it in at Massey Hall in 1969 off of Sunday Concert, which was okay. just the trio playing. But of these ones, they're the most they're orchestrated, and there's a whole string section. And I like uh, the one on Gord's Gold maybe the best. I think he sounds the best, and I love that slow section in it with the 
Well, it probably is mandolin. Um, in the concert, Terry Clements would play it like a mandolin. He played the guitar like it's a mandolin, but we mm -hmm. did see there on his credits that in fact there was a mandolin used mm -hmm. on that album. So I suspect that's what it is, but I really love that section. It's just somehow it's the, it's like you're sitting around a fire and there the guys are that are, have been working. And I, I, I find it particularly beautiful. Some of the string parts in it are a bit dated in a sense, the, the whole orchestra doing its thing. I tend to like simpler arrangements, but that would be my, how about yours? What's your favorite? I actually prefer the Gord's Gold one also, and it may be dated, but as I've said in other contexts, the song is so cinematic. The way that Lee Holdridge did the orchestration on Gord's Gold. Mm -hmm. The mandolin was one part of it that I really liked, as you said, Terry Clarence's mandolin. And then the other one is the steel that I think was done by Pee Wee Charles. Right. Yep. And it was done just so perfectly. It wasn't so twangy or so forward in the mix to make it sound like a country song, yeah. but it was not buried so far down in the mix that you couldn't tell he was there. So I really liked that. I can tell you that there's probably two reasons that I didn't like the original recording. One was that I didn't think that Gordon's voice sounded as mature and deep and profound as it did in the 75 recording. And then the other reason is quite honestly, the harmonica that Charlie McCoy was playing. To me, it made it go too far. It, it sounded too much like a Western, uh, too cliched. I guess it, it's hard for me to find the words for it, but that to me kind of turned me off when I looked at how the album one of Gord's Gold was done and it was so finely crafted. I thought mm -hmm. this just, it just speaks to me more. And I think it may be one of the reasons, I don't know if Gordon has ever gone on record about saying that, well, this is an example of why I don't like listening to my earlier work, but he did re-record that song for the greatest hits for a reason. But the people who played on it, Gordon was playing 12 string guitar and doing the vocals. Red Shea uh, was playing lead guitar. Terry Clements won lead guitar on Gord's Gold. John Stockfish played on the original, and when we got to the 75 re-recording, Rick Haynes had taken over. Uh, and then we've talked about Lee Holdridge, and we talked about Charlie McCoy. And so they both have their aspects that make them distinctive, but I, I'm with you. I really do like the Gord's Gold version better. I have not heard it in concert, either in the recordings or in live in concert, but I imagine it would be an experience, particularly if I was in front of a Canadian audience. Mm-hmm. The album went gold in Canada. I don't believe this just because of its length, probably. I don't think this song was ever put out as a single. No, I can't imagine that would have been. I mean, it's seven minutes, so I, I really doubt it. I mean, it just always was, was amazing that the record, the Edmund Fitzgerald made it as a single, but this is even longer. It's Yeah, and it, it Edmund Fitzgerald has a more rockin' feel to it, uh, whereas this, I think of is, I mean, it's straight out of the folk tradition. What about the covers? This song has been re-recorded by at least six different people that I know of. And the one that I guess is the most well-known is the one that was George Hamilton IV did. Um, have you heard any of the cover versions of this? 
Uh, only one other one that I'm aware of, and that is a, a Canadian singer named James Keelahan, who did it in 2003 on an album called Beautiful, a tribute to Gordon Lightfoot, which was a, a whole bunch of artists that did, and that was the song that he did. And he does actually a very nice version of it. It's very in the flavor of, of how Gordon does it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anyone that you would like to hear cover this song that hasn't done it? Or does Gordon's version of it really stand alone and maybe it doesn't need to be covered anymore? That's my feeling. I mean, I'm, I do like covers of some of his songs that others have done without a doubt. I think it's interesting to hear what people do. Like I, the whole bunch of Tony Rice stuff, which is not always my thing, but I appreciate how people do it. But this one, I don't know. It's such a signature tune. This song will last longer than almost any of his others a hundred years from now it's a folk song i mean it's a true folk song that will will live for a long time so i don't know it's his song it's just so his song john is this a song really that can only be played honestly by a canadian no because i think that it's the workers and what they i don't see why that would be any different on any other railroad i i think especially with the united states the railroads that were built i think there's so much in there i think that's probably why it's lasted as well and he tours of course does this often you've probably found out how many times you've seen it show up in set lists but it's it's a popular tune because it's got universal themes I've played it in my own gigs when I was in college quite a bit. And that was before I sort of got my chops and I realized that, you know, there was such a historical background to it and the context in which it was written and why it was written and what it was about. And this was years after I was playing music with any frequency. And so I got out of that thinking, I almost had a twinge of guilt saying, ah, maybe I don't need to be playing this because it's something that only, you know, some who has the patriotic associations with, but you just absolved me of some guilt there. Oh, yeah, Thank you, John. <laughs> so this is turning into a bit of a thing with me as we begin to wrap up here. And if you've done the research on this, God bless you, but I haven't had a guest who's done this. How many times has Gordon Lightfoot played this song in concert since 1966? Take a guess. I, I mean, I'm trying to guess. I should, I need to cal calculate roughly how many shows he does a year. He always says, or he would do, you know, 10 times out, 12 times. So 120 shows, a, 100 shows a year times 30 years, you know. Um, he, and he does it about half the time. Um, so I'm going to say probably a thousand times. Okay. According to what I've got, and this is from setlist.com, 504 times altogether. The first one was at New Penelope in Montreal. And that, by the way, is my sole claim to having any links to Canada because my grandmother was born in Montreal oh, and then she migrated down to California. And then the most recent time that I know of was that he played it on September 20th, 2017 at the Hanover Center for the Performing Arts in Worcester, Massachusetts. So there may have been ones sooner than that. There may have been others that they missed, but that's the sort of official total. Well, okay. that's, a, that's a pretty good number. Yeah, absolutely. And considering his repertoire, I mean, that he's played it as many times as he has. So, John, as we wrap up here, any closing thoughts on this song, why you particularly love it, uh, why you wanted to talk about it on the show? Uh, well, two things, and I, I've sort of said some of it already, I guess, but one is I've always had an interest in Canadian history. I did when I was a kid, but it was actually probably spurred on because of this song. That's one reason. And the other is that this is why I got into doing music in my life in, in not just, 
I have done it on and off over the years professionally. And this was gave me the spark that got me going. Mm -hmm. And so it, it means an awful lot to me, this song. It's great. Really. All right. John McLaughlin, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a beautiful day as we're recording this in both British Columbia and Northern California. So it's tempting to be outside, but I'm glad that we're here talking right now. Thank you for being on the show. Our next episode will be coming out around the week of June 15th, and it will feature a discussion of Early Morning Rain with our very special guest, Pete Fullerton, who was the bass guitarist for We Five back in the late 1960s. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. There was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run. When the wild majestic mountains stood alone against the sun Long before the white man and long before the wheel Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.